Welcome to another episode of Civic Cypher. I am your host, Ramses Ja. He is Ramses Ja. Mm-hmm. I am Q Ward. Yes, indeed. Um, got a heavy show today. As is the case far too often, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Quandry Sanders uh, was a person that uh, was a victim of excessive force by police officers. And we're going to spend the entire show uh, sifting through that. It's a very disturbing video. um, And something interesting about that is that you're kind of there with him in his last moments. Um, And so we're gonna have a human episode today. We're also going to be talking about the Tuskegee Airmen a little bit later on in the show uh, for our Way Black History Fact. Um, And we're also going to be talking about uh, a feel-good story, one that I really am looking forward to sharing about uh, an elementary school in Arizona where all of the third graders are going to be receiving full-ride scholarships in the event they choose to go to college. That is incredible. So yeah, a lot to look forward to. Um, but yeah, today is definitely going to be a heavy show. Um, you know, around here we're dealing with a lot, a lot. I'll be honest. Um, and you know, as we mentioned from time to time, this is our therapy, and we know that this, at least the show that we'll be having today, kind of sh- sent a shockwave through uh, the the country. And um, so we appreciate you tuning in with us to, you know, sort through it. But um, first and foremost, we'd like to start things off on um, a positive note around here. So Ebony Excellence, with Q's permission. Shall we? We shall. Uh, So this one comes to us from Black Enterprise. Uh, The heading is Black Tech CEO Bill Sprill turned his employees into millionaires we uh like black millionaires around here i love that headline yeah man um and uh we do believe that wealth shapes outcomes <laughs> and so whenever we have a story where we can celebrate some black wealth we like to uh to talk about it so i'll read black tech entrepreneur bill sprill turned his employees into millionaires when he sold his startup global data consortium for an undisclosed amount Axios reported the North Carolina tech company was sold to the owner of the London Stock Exchange. Financial details have yet to be disclosed, but Sprill described the amount as a Bronto-level transaction, which NetSuite bought for $200 million in 2015. When Sprill started the Global Data Consortium, he was only able to raise $5 million from investors, which left most of the employees, um, uh, which left most of the company's equity in the hands of its employees. Sprill and Data Global co-partnered Charles Gaddy made sure the employees had enough equity to receive significant payouts. The sale had turned more than 20 of the company's employees into millionaires, and Sprill will step down as CEO to focus on boosting minority talent in tech, which, of course, we need. Um, in 2020, Sprill led a campaign to get more of Rally's tech scene to place their case reserves with Black-owned banks, including MNF Bank, one of the oldest Black-owned banks in the country. The tech industry is still overwhelmingly white and male today, but Sprill and others have been pushing to add diverse talent to some of the largest tech companies. Sprill, who has spent most of his career in tech, remembers feeling alone in the industry with no mentors and no one to act as an example. He added, it was a challenge to find black mentors, both locally and nationally. 
His goal, his goal is to create more black mentors and senior leaders in the industry. So shout out to Bill Sprill and all the new millionaires as a result of the sale. And shout out to, to black tech mentors. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, and, I, and this is another thing that we've been covering a lot on my other show, the Black Information Network daily podcast. Um, we talk about things like this quite a bit. And I do have an episode up. Um, might have been two or three weeks ago. So if you are into tech, uh, black tech specifically, and, and want to know where the opportunities are, once again, the Black Information Network daily podcast, um, you can find it on the iHeartMedia app and uh, learn a little bit more about it. I certainly did. Now, moving on. Okay. Um, before we peel back the uh, layers here and, and dive into our Washington Post um, article. Uh, one of the things that happens on this show is that we take turns when it comes to watching these sorts of videos. You know, um, we realize that this is radio and that you may not have seen the video that we're about to describe and therefore we have to describe it. And so we do have to focus on what's happening in the video. And because we're journalists, we have to try to be as objective as we can be. Um, so as to not become overwhelmed with black death, with black harm. You know, we're human, so we can say death and harm. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be black, but, you know, in this space, we, you know, we deal with a lot of, you know, melanated individuals at the end of their lives, and we are the ones who have to ask, ask why and what else could have been done. Um, you know, we take turns with these things. Uh, I'll go a week and, or, or in, in a, a death, usually, or a beating or something in our group chat. Hey, you know what? I heard about this. Um, if you haven't watched it yet, I'll watch it. It's my turn. I'll watch the video, make the notes that I need to make to prepare for the show. And I'll ask you, Hey, so, um, have you seen it? He'll say, well, I have not seen it. And I'll say, good. And then I'll describe it to him so that you, our listener will understand and he will you know, um, and we'll get that initial reaction. So it has like, it serves two purposes to, to produce the show this way. Well, every so often we'll come across a video like the one we'll be describing today where there's no way around it. We both need to watch it. And we have our, <clears throat> moments separately often we find these videos they make their way to our phones and we're in we're not in the same room and um then we have to come together and discuss it because now we both know what we're up against and we have to figure out how to make this work on the radio we have to re you know reintroduce the questions that we asked initially okay why are we doing this show what is the objective? What, sh what should people care about? We have to sort of theorize what you, our listener, wants from this show and do our best to create a program that will keep you coming back next week, keep you interested in civic engagement, keep you fighting for what's right, 
um, to humanize black people a bit more than I believe society has allowed us to be <laughs> full, complete humans, you know, so we try to bring that component as well. Um, as Q likes to point out quite a bit, um, black lives matter is a controversial statement. Um, if someone were to say white lives matter, I don't think anyone would bat an eye, you know, um, I think it's just a given. And, uh, so humanizing black people and black stories is, is very important. And so there's sort of a, a conundrum when we're having to present black death to you because we're part of normalizing that we're a part of making it, you know, well, this week, this is who died, you know, and these people are worth more than that. They're worth more than just their death. Um, It's, it's, a, it's a heavy thing to do. And I appreciate you letting me talk about this. You know, and while I'm here, if I may, please, um, for those that don't know, for those who are just becoming familiar with this show, um, shout out to our new listeners in Indianapolis. <laughs> um, we're, we're DJs, we're broadcasters. You know, we, we come from hip hop radio. We're used to having fun on the radio and our lives changed in 2020 um, during, you know, the George Floyd protests when we realized what more we could be doing. And now we do this show and we have to figure out how to make this work every week. And it's not the sort of thing that we've emotionally prepared ourselves, or at least I'll speak for myself. Because I'm really good with happy. I'm really good with funny. Um, you know, this is necessary. And I'm not, if I'm honest, I'm not really good with death. I'm not really good with people being harmed. You know, I try to be fair. And so sometimes these episodes are a little bit challenging for me. But I'm learning how to do this. And we're having our therapy together. That's what I promised when we first when Q and I first put the show together, that we're, we're going to have our therapy together. And today is going to be one such episode. With that said, Q, you saw the video. Unfortunately, I did. And in the moments that I see videos like this, kind of pulling people behind the curtain a little bit, Ramses and I have some conversations that really speak to the genesis or the foundation of what became civic cipher, mm -hmm. um, civil unrest, um, a moment of kind of horrific disappointment in what our country and our legal and criminal justice system are supposed to be mm -hmm. watching a black man have his life taken from him with such apathy. Yeah. Right? Like he was so less than that the man murdering him did it with a kind of smug whatever expression on his face as this man pled for his life and cried for his mom, this grown man that led to this life-changing show that we now do 
and life changing in a very literal sense. I'm not being hyperbolic here. We, we changed our lives. Yeah. We, we threw our careers away. Essentially, we didn't know that something like this would come of it. Yeah, we didn't know it would be a successful national show. Yeah, there was no we didn't have a backup plan. Yeah. You know, we were put in a position because of our circumstances where, okay, we can't do this anymore. If this is the type of support or lack thereof that we're going to receive with regard to telling our own stories into these microphones that we are making money off of for you. (laughs) You know what I mean? So. So many stories and videos since then. Yeah. And you talk about the idea of, of becoming numb to it. That never happens for me. Every time we're, I'm starting from scratch. And I say, pull you guys behind the curtains, because sometimes I see these and I'm like, okay, Ramses, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. What are we doing? Why are we doing are we making any progress whatsoever? And it's really, really difficult to give me an affirmative on that <laughs> because these stories are not getting less. We don't have less of these to talk about. There's a dozen of these a week that we can't talk about. We just don't have enough time. We don't have enough show. And the scary thing is, even if we did, if we were on the air every day, we still couldn't cover all of it. And this is not our imagination. This is not us uh, gaslighting. We're not creating these situations. Uh, We're watching these things happen. And the perpetrators are not discouraged at all. Right? Like you think that the increase in national and international attention would curb some of these things or, or, you know, at least try to quench that fire a little bit, but no, it roars on seemingly even more so as if to rub it in our faces. This is how we actually feel. This is how we're actually going to treat you. And there's absolutely nothing that you can or will do about it. Let us keep proving that to you. I want to jump in here because there's, this it's like a zombie it's like a myth that won't die that people continue to perpetuate they they keep breathing life into this long dead myth at least in our opinion and that's that um it's a few bad apples a few bad apples that misrepresent the entirety of policing And that's, I know it's a comfortable thing to say because it allows you to keep your framework of the world as it is. You don't have to look at the institution of policing like, you know what, maybe that institution that has been that black people and brown people have pushed back against for centuries now. Maybe that system is flawed. Maybe that system is not as humane as it is to us less melanated individuals. So again, telling yourself it's a few bad apples allows you to keep the current framework of, you know, your world. And maybe you have a relative or two, or maybe you met a nice officer or whatever. I've met nice officers. You know what I mean? Like I, I get it. I get how that's a comfortable thing to tell yourself. 
Um, I also understand how there's a number of other things that you could tell yourself. Um, you know, uh, that these guys need better training, you know, that these guys need better, uh, sensitivity training or, you know, they need more money. They need, you know, whatever it is, better qualified individuals, you know, whatever on and on. There's a, there's a litany of things that make this more digestible because you'll watch the video again. The person we're talking about is Quandry Sanders. Um, he was in Oklahoma. So that's all you need to look up the video. Um, you look at the video and you say, well, yeah, that officer, you know, uh, obviously was overzealous or those officers, I think it was a couple officers that, that executed him. But you know what, if you look at black man shot on Google, as we did today, before we started uh, our show, um, you'll see that you'll see the systemic component. You'll see that it's not a few bad and the cost of that blind eye that everyone is turning or that, um, you know, whatever the cost of that is all of those people, they were alive, you know, even if they, they were wrong, which as we know, not all of them are wrong. Even if they were dead wrong, they never got a chance to get their day in court, which is something that you listening to us would expect, right? Anybody would expect that. That's the rule of any advanced society. You know, you get a chance to plead your case. And, you know, what we're seeing is the front end of the criminal justice system just eliminating the lives of human beings, and disproportionately Black, disproportionately poor. Um, and the interesting thing about it is that oftentimes in these videos, the justification, and Q is going to yell at me for saying this, but the justification is that the officers feared for their safety, right? And this video, the reason why we're taking our time with this one, is this video, any reasonable person would, would look at the video and say, well, okay, so where's the fear? Now, I'll admit, I didn't see what happened before the video. I don't know what the officers walked into, Right. But from what I understand, they were, um, it was in an order of protection or something, some standard issue. It wasn't like they walked into a firefight, you know? So if you're walking into a firefight, maybe, you know? Um, but this fear that is so prevalent with the police officers, it cannot exist in the same narrative where we celebrate police officers as a country as being brave as being first responders. If the first responder paramedics showed up and they were too scared to you know, give your grandma CPR, would they still be first responders? Or would we replace them with someone who could respond first and actually do the job without us you know, experiencing some additional hardship as a result of it? Um, and again, we're pointing at systemic things. You know, if it was an isolated incident, it would be tragic. But because this happens, as Q mentioned, a few times a week, you know, um, maybe not video recorded deaths, but we do get videos every week, tons of them. Sometimes they're beating. Sometimes the people who get shot survive, you know, all this sort of stuff. 
and it it's it's as as you mentioned q it's it's challenging to you know i'm the optimist of the two of us q is the realist as we always say it's challenging to continue to tell myself that not that we're not being effective because we're broadcasters and you're listeners and you've been very supportive and very faithful and loyal to this show. So we love our listeners, but, you know, I'm, I would say maybe the country, you know, it kind of feels like sometimes like we're the band on this, on the Titanic that's playing as the ship is going down. Like we got it. We can do our job. <laughs> you know what I mean? We can make sure everybody, you know, has what we're able to give them. But if the whole ship is going down, then eventually we're all going to be overwhelmed by this thing. And as we've seen recently with Roe v. Wade, which before I say anything, um, I, I want to acknowledge our producer, Ms. Maggie. She is in the room with us. She, is, she produces this show for us every week. She is a woman. I am not. And I'm not qualified to talk about how upsetting that is because I'd be speaking out of turn. But I will say that, you know, seeing an attack like that on Roe v. Wade and hearing the rumors of attacks on things like um, interracial marriage. And I think you mentioned some more, Q, uh, what you believe I might mean, be next. We can go on on that that track or on that path or down Probably that down, path yeah. forever. Sure. Um, right. The biases that exist, be they implicit or explicit, contradict themselves so often. Mm -hmm. Right. The same group that wants to point out that there was a gun present when this man was murdered. He didn't have it on him, but there was a gun present are the same people that want to uphold their rights to bear arms. <laughs> right. If there's a gun present, your murder is justified. However, everyone should have a gun. So, OK, which is it? Yeah. Yeah. Are we all sentenced to death for being gun owners? Is that is that where this leads? The same people that want to overturn women's right to a safe and healthy abortion mm -hmm. also want to argue that you people need to get off your butts and get a job and don't depend on welfare like you want to make sure that this kid arrives here but once it's here now you expect us to take care of it that's just ridiculous so which is it right this this continued targeting not just toward black and brown people but toward poor people poor people but we can make the reason that so many people are poor because of the color of their skin and what comes with that, their laziness, their criminal mentality, or whatever you want to point to, or whatever narrative you want to try to create. You cannot still have it both ways. All of the things that you want to argue for contradicting yourself constantly so that you can still frame whatever your beliefs are around supporting these ideas that are strictly you being racist, bigoted, and a laundry list of other things, uh, xenophobic, homophobic, we can go on and on, right? We want to use the Bible to justify it. We want to use all of this circular rhetoric that if you speak to them long enough, you will realize it's, it's straw man at best. It's yeah. Um, it's, it's not just sad anymore. It's infuriating. Mm. And the idea that we can have these conversations that you and I have without yelling and cursing every week, I'd, I'd like to pat us on the back for that because you know I'd rather not be so calm. Well, I do know that 
cursing doesn't really go that far around these parts um, for obvious reasons. Uh, but, but yeah, I do recognize the uh, frustration, especially on a, a day like today. This is a sad day. And, and we knew that you, our listener, would expect um, for us to, to cover this. Um, again, we have a couple additional stations. I want to shout out Power 100.9 in Albuquerque. Um, and shout out to my man, Tony over there who uh, put us on the air um you know we recognize that you expect this from us and so we have to honor what we signed up for we have to wade through this and um we have to have this conversation on the air and we will um have a full article to read through and i know we haven't described the video but stay tuned because that's coming up and now proper propaganda, propaganda. but if you're just tuning in to civic cipher i'm your host ramses ja he is ramses ja i am q ward yes indeed and um I'm going to need you to stick around because, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to be discussing the recent shooting of Quandry Sanders in Oklahoma. Um, we're also going to discuss the Tuskegee Airmen. Believe it or not, as long as we've been on the show, we haven't brought up the Airmen. That's impossible. So, you know, if you've heard of the Tuskegee Airmen or Tuskegee, you know, we're going to breathe some life into that as well. Um, it's interesting because we have a way black history fact every week and we don't always um, know some of the things and some of the things that we, we do know because they're a little bit more um, prevalent, but this one is just one that we just hadn't gotten to. And so I'm excited to uh, share that with you today. But first um, we're going to talk about becoming a better ally. So uh, this also comes from black enterprise um, the headline is all third graders of Arizona elementary school will receive full ride scholarships. Um, we, uh, are big fans of Arizona around here. We have a couple stations in Arizona, hot 98.3 in Tucson and power 98.3 in Phoenix. Um, and of course all the listeners in Phoenix that support the show and have supported us since the beginning. Uh, I'll read third graders at Bernard Black Elementary School and their parents were surprised with amazing news that would give them an advantage when enrolling in college. Last week, the families were invited to a normal assembly, at least that's what they thought, only to be told that all third graders would receive full ride college scholarships courtesy of a local nonprofit. The school district announced and 12 News reported, quote, I just thought it was another award because he's a good kid, said Brandard Gallard about his son Noah. Quentin Boyce, a spokesman for the Roosevelt School District Number 66, gave the announcement about the Rostovsky Foundation's pledge. Um, the foundation is an Avondale, Arizona-based nonprofit that leads college promise programs to help students afford college opportunities they deserve. According to USA Today, Tom Rostovsky, a trustee with the Rostovsky Foundation, said that the graduates from Bernard Black Elementary School, as well as the school in the Phoenix Union High School District, can attend college in or outside the state. 
Through the College Promise Program, college tuition, books, room, and board will be covered. Although these fees can increase, the foundation has not capped the amount in scholarships. Quote, I'm a single parent and college is far away, but it's not easy. Uh, Tanisha Miller, a single mother of two said, quote, just thinking that someone has the kindness in their heart to want to send someone like my child to school is a little overwhelming. I just couldn't hold back the tears because for sure my son is going to college. We didn't go because we couldn't afford it. Bernard Black Elementary School is named after Reverend Dr. Bernard Black, a pioneer in education, 33rd degree Mason and World War II veteran. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with Phoenix, Dems Black folks. Indeed. And that's how you can become a better ally. All right. So it's time to read. This comes from the Washington Post. Two former Oklahoma police officers have been charged with first-degree manslaughter and the fatal shooting of a black man in December while responding to a 911 call of an alleged protective order violation. Following a months-long probe by the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, Comanche County District Attorney Kyle Kabelka on Friday charged ex-Lawton officers Robert Hinkle, 30, and Nathan Ronan, 29, in the death of Quadri Sanders, 29. The Oklahoman reported, body camera footage released by the Lawson Police Department shows Sanders stands as he is confronted by police outside a Lawton home on December 5th, 2021. A 911 caller reported Sanders was waving a gun in the house and wouldn't let a resident leave, according to authorities. The video shows Sanders appeared from around a refrigerator, his hands were visible, and he appeared to be holding a ball cap, which he moved from his right hand to his left hand. Sanders then moved partially behind the refrigerator. Let me stop right here. Actually, I want to read this next one. Sanders wasn't armed, Kabelka said. All right, I'm going to stop right here. Now, because I know this song and dance, well... Why did he duck behind the refrigerator? The officers can't see behind the refrigerator, right? This is my journalistic cap. What would the opposition say? What would the other side say, right? To make it okay that he lost his life. What would the uh, pro-police folks say? You don't know what it's like unless you're in the moment. What we're going to do on this show is afford Mr. Sanders that courtesy. Because least don't know what it's like to be black to come out to see guns pointed at you and to think oh my god my hands are up but they're screaming they're mad and they're probably scared let me see if i can hide behind this refrigerator not and they're probably scared go ahead Q, give it to me both barrels i need it because that's absolutely not what i'm thinking mm -hmm. go ahead. i'm not thinking they're probably scared and our show in an effort to be fair, gives that scapegoat way more than I'm okay with. That's, that's me. I'm standing with my hands up. They're both pointing guns at me. So I'm not thinking they're probably scared. I'm scared to death, which is why I'm probably going to try to get behind this refrigerator so I don't die right now. I need you to say that. I need you to say it every time. I'll continue reading. <sighs> Hinkle shot four times at Sanders, who appeared to have his right hand raised above his head before falling to the ground. Sanders sat up with his hands above his head. Hinkle then fired seven more times. 
Ronan also fired four times at Sanders, according to Kabelka, bringing the total number of shots fired at Sanders to 15. Kabelka said no weapon was found on Sanders nor in the area where he was shot. Gary James, an Oklahoma City-based attorney representing Hinkle, who is black, and Ronan, who is white, said officers had repeatedly been called to the house because of Saunders. And the evidence will show on the night of the fatal shooting, they believed he was searching for a weapon in his pants. Hmm. With his hands in the air, might I add. Nobody is looking into the facts of this case, James told the Oklahoman on Sunday. These are good police officers, <laughs> James said. A gun was later discovered on the table in the living room where Sanders came out of. Hmm. I'm glad again, you made that. I'm glad you made that point earlier. Kim. Once again, the presence of a gun should not mean that I die tonight, especially when the gun was not on my person, let alone in my hand. Um, I'm going to stop right here. Um, as we mentioned, he's dead. He, he's not alive. That was his last moment. Um, and because we saw the video, we know that he died in terror, screaming. Um, and it's an empty death. From where we sit, you know, before we start breathing life into the other side of this, we want to breathe some life into this, the actual person who is not alive. Um, you know, the other day, <laughs> the other day, I, um, I have a friend who's a professor, college professor, and uh, she teaches uh, research statistics at Arizona State University. And we were actually discussing uh, an upcoming segment that I want to do for Civic Cipher, um, where research and data is really important. And she's done some work in that field. Prior to becoming a professor, she was working as a research, a researcher. Anyway, um, She's the sort of person that doesn't really get into popular culture, you know, that sort of things. So it's really easy for her to miss things. Um, she had no idea about Will Smith and Chris Rock, for instance. Um, I believe there was a song playing where we were at, and it was probably summertime or, you know, a Fresh Prince record or something like that. And I made a joke about it and just she just kind of giggled, but she didn't get it. And then I explained it to her and I got everyone where I was at to explain it to her so that, you know, she knew that she was the only one that didn't know that this was like common knowledge. She's like, oh, my God. Um, and so I'm explaining to her the show, you know, sort of what we are going to need to discuss. And, you know, pulled up um, just because I had it ready, pulled up this video of uh, Quandry Sanders. And um, 
we saw the video. Uh, Quadru was, um, had his hands up just like, you know, I read. And you hear the officer screaming. And then you hear the shots, bang, bang, bang. And, you know, he falls down. And you think it's over. And then they're still screaming, let me see your hands, let me see your hands. So he puts his hands back up and they shoot again, boom, boom, boom. And, you know, I just, just imagining what is, he doesn't know what to do. I wouldn't know what to do. You want me to see my hands and then you're going to shoot me again? Like, do I run? Do I, do I just stay here and keep getting shot or, you know, I don't know. I don't know. There's, there's no way for, there was no way for Quadri to come out of that alive. This is, this is my, there was no way those guys went there. And I know Q, I know why I'm saying this. They showed up afraid of that melanin. Go ahead. You can say they showed up and deliberately, you know, whatever, uh, because we need that here. But there was no way, the point I'm making, there's no way for him to get out of that alive. So any of his movements were justified, in my opinion. Because he, if you saw the video yourself, there's, there's, no, there's nothing that you can do except die. So what she and I watched on the video is a human being get executed. This wasn't an eight minute long video where, you know, um, we had to really sit with it for a long time. It was quick and it was over. And yet and still, the intensity of emotion that was exchanged there at that table was it was profound. Um, I'm not above crying because it's sad to me. And sadness is a feeling that I feel. Um, I've already proven, not to the world, but to myself, that I'm a man. <laughs> and uh, so all I have left is to be a human. And humans feel things, you know. It's important that you use the word human there. Hmm. Have you ever seen a hunter leaving the taxidermist? Talk to me. Um, in movies, when I was growing up, you would always see animal heads or animal bodies post-taxidermy at someone's house as trophies mm -hmm. stuffed, hanging on the wall in a trophy room. Mm -hmm. But if you ever see the hunters when they're entering or leaving the taxidermist, there's this sense of pride. They armed their rifles, they went hunting, and they killed something, not because they were afraid of it. It's like a sport to them. It's not like a sport. It's a sport to them. They get licensed for it. There's a season for it. There's hunting season. Hmm. These officers are not showing up afraid. They're not in the car trembling on their way. Oh, my God, I don't know what we're going to do when we get here, man. I really hope that what we're looking for isn't here. No, Ramses. That's not what's happening. They've made up their minds before they get where they're going. That not, even if the objective was not to go murder this guy. Not murdering him was not something that they figured that they weren't going to do today. Mm. The worst possible outcome, they haven't written that off. They almost jumped to that. They did in this video. It was the first thing they did. So 
That's not fear. Just like shooting men in their backs as they run away from you isn't fear. fear. It's an excuse that we give them that I'm really, really tired of us providing that exit ramp because that's not fear or cowardice. That's hate. So here's and they're seeing someone that they think is beneath human. As okay to murder. So here's where that. Here's why that's important. Um, For this show, I recognize that. There are there's a group of people in this country. I've met some of these folks. They reach out to us on our social media from time to time. Who feel like they can say Black Lives Matter. They feel like, of course, Black people belong here. Black people are the reason for people. You know, um, we love not only Black people, but Black culture. And they, they provide, help provide all of the richness that we're able to experience, along with brown people and you know, people from all over the world, right? There are people who believe that. And some of those people also feel like, I, I can't call myself anti-police. I, I can't do that. I need to support police officers, police. And I believe in their heart of hearts, they wanna be the good guys. They wanna, you know, blah, 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 right? So there's a group of people out there who feel like both of those things are true for them. And for those people, it is comfortable for them to be able to say, well, all of these things cannot be hate. They cannot be strategic. They cannot be pre-planned or premeditated. Some of this has to be fear. And that word fear is a word that I hear often, um, often enough to where I could make a case that, well, you can't give them fear and bravery in the same narrative. And so it is a way of challenging these folks to think beyond the framework they have and to look at the larger system because it's the system that's killing people. These individuals, yes, you know, but there's a whole system there that has perpetuated violence against black and brown people since its inception. In fact, it was designed to subjugate black people specifically in this country. That was what it was at its inception. And so I recognize your frustration. Believe me when I say it's my frustration as well. But I also recognize that the people we're talking to, a good number of them might need that baby step. And then I'm able to challenge them into looking at the system because some of those folks can pick apart every single thing. Well, this officer was this, this officer did that, this officer overlooked this, this, you know what I mean? But when you, when you force folks to take a step back and look at everything else, my belief is that perhaps we can um, identify a real problem because, you know, these folks in this scenario do say that they support black people and they want black people to have justice and not be the victims of um, police brutality and, and, being murdered by the police without having any sort of justification or anything like that. And then of course there being no accountability, which is the major insult there, the lack of accountability, you know, because we always talk about quote unquote, black on black crime. 
<laughs> but there's some accountability even when that happens, same as white on white crime you yeah. know, or any on any color on any color crime. There's the potential for there to be accountability. Far too often, police officers murder black people with impunity. Right. That's and issue one. Issue one. Ramses, I want you to finish reading, right? You, these are good police officers is about where you left off. <laughs> <laughs> Can we start there and finish what we have here left to read? Because there's some important information in there. Absolutely. Okay. Um, James said a gun was later discovered on a table in the living room where Saunders came out. Uh, civil rights attorney S. Lee Merritt, who represents the family of George Floyd, represented the family of George Floyd and is the lead lawyer for Ahmaud Aubrey's estate, is also representing Saunders' family. Merritt said he wants the charges upgraded to murder. That's what it looked like to me. It didn't look like an accident. It didn't look like a manslaughter. Quote, it really shocks the conscience when you have a chance to see Mr. Saunders literally doing whatever he could to try to save his own life. And these officers are operating with such callousness. Merritt told KSWO TV Channel 7 in Lawton, um, Hinkle and Ronan were fired from the police department on January 7th. Lawton city manager, Michael Cleghorn, said in a statement, Hinkle and Ronan were released Friday on a $25,000 bond. They face a minimum of four years in state prison if convicted of the fatal shooting of Saunders. The hearing is scheduled for August 1st. With impunity, I say again. More or less. Like imagine, even if convicted. Well, yeah, four years. Four years. <laughs> and imagine if it was the other way around, an officer getting... Was, but that's the thing. There is no other way around. Yeah, sure, you're right. Right? If If... Mr. Saunders shot one of those police officers. There's no version of this where he gets four years in prison. Mm -hmm. If he even survives the altercation, because they do have that take the law into their own hands, unwritten clause. Mm -hmm. You know, you shoot and kill a police officer. You'd be lucky to see a day in court. Mm -hmm. And if you do, there's no version of it where you just get what we would call a slap, slap on, on the wrist. wrist. Yeah. Um, these are good police officers. That's a lot. Well, then being a good police officer isn't enough. Then you have to be better than that. Murdering someone on your off day can't be something that's allowed on your record. And in the event that you make that mistake, you just get to go home. All right, man, you had a tough day today. We're going to. We're going to need you to turn in your badge. Yeah. $25,000 bond bills. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I want to make sure that it's said since we're talking about it. We, historically, Black people have had a deep-seated mistrust of the police. And white 
people, if I'm painting with broad strokes, generally have not because the police sort of work to protect the entrance, the interests of wealthy white men. If you boil it all the way down, that's facts. Um, you know, I got bit by a dog one time when I was little. And the lady whose dog it was, well, the dog had never bitten her. So it couldn't have been the dog's fault. You know what I mean? But according was, to her, that dog probably doesn't bite. Doesn't bite, right? And what it did was it messed up my head. Now, even at 40, <laughs> almost 40 years old in a, an adult man body, um, to still hear a dog bark and have that, mm, 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 not over here. Come get your dog, dog. Um, I think that there's a, a justifiable um, argument for our apprehension to engage with or otherwise celebrate the police to the degree that our Caucasian brothers and sisters do. And so police reform now. And we're afraid we put our hands up and look afraid. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. That's facts. All right. Turn and run the other way and look afraid. And no two ways about it. All right. So it's time for the way black history fact. Sponsored by hip hop weekly. Um, today we're going to talk about the Tuskegee Airmen. This one comes from history.com. Um, yeah. So the Tuskegee Airmen were the first black military aviators in the U.S. Army Corps, a precursor of the U.S. Air Force. Trained at the Tuskegee Army Airfield in Alabama, they flew more than 15,000 individual sorties in Europe and North America during World War II. Their impressive performance earned them more than 150 distinguished flying crosses and helped encourage the eventual integration of the U.S. Armed Forces. During the 1920s and 30s, the exploits of record-setting pilots like Charles Lindbergh and Amelia Earhart had captivated the nation, and thousands of young men and women clamored to follow in their footsteps. But young African-Americans who aspired to become pilots met with significant obstacles, starting with the widespread racist belief that black people could not learn to fly or operate sophisticated aircraft. In 1938, with Europe te teetering on the brink of another great war, President Franklin D. Roosevelt announced he would expand the civilian pilot training program in the United States. In 1938, with <laughs> at the time, racial segregation remained the rule in the U.S. armed forces as well as much of the country. Much of the military establishment, particularly in the South, believed black soldiers were inferior to whites and performed relatively poor, poorly in combat. But as the AAC began ramping up its training program, black newspapers like the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier joined civil rights groups like the NAACP in arguing that black Americans be included. In September 1940, Roosevelt's White House responded to such lobbying campaigns by announcing that the AAC would soon begin to train black pilots. For the training site, the War Department chose the Tuskegee Army Field in Tuskegee, Alabama, then under construction, home to the prestigious Tuskegee Institute founded by Booker T. Washington. It was located in the heart of the Jim Crow South. The program's trainees, nearly all of them college graduates or undergraduates, came from all over the country. In addition to some 1,000 pilots, the Tuskegee program trained nearly 1,400 navigators, sorry, 14,000 navigators, bombardiers, instructors, and uh, aircraft and engine mechanics. 
as well as control tower operators and other maintenance and support staff. Among the 13 members of the first class of aviation cadets in 1941 was Benjamin O. Davis Jr., a graduate of West Point and the son of Brigadier General Benjamin O. Davis, one of two black officers other than chaplains in the entire U.S. military. The Tuskegee experiment took a great leap forward in April 1941, thanks to a visit by Eleanor Roosevelt to the Air Force Field. Charles Chief Anderson, then the chief flight instructor of the program, took the first lady on an aerial tour and photos and film of that flight helped publicize the program. In April 1943, the Tuskegee trained 99th Pursuit Squadron deployed to North Africa, which the Allies had occupied. In North Africa and then Sicily, they flew missions in secondhand P-40 planes, which were slower and more difficult to maneuver than their German counterparts. After the commander of the 99th assigned fighter group complained about the squadron's performance, Davis had to defend his men for a War Department committee. Rather than being shipped home, the 99th was moved to Italy, where they served alongside the white pilots of the 79th fighter group. In early 1944, pilots from the 99th shot down 12 German fighters in two days, going some distance toward proving themselves in combat. In February 1944, the 100th, 301st, and 302nd fighter squadrons arrived in Italy. Together with the 99th, these squadrons of black pilots and other personnel made up the new 332nd fighter group. After this transfer, the pilots of the 332nd began flying P-51 Mustangs to escort the heavy bombers of the 15th Air Force during raids deep into enemy territory. The tails of their pains were painted red for identification purposes, earning them the enduring nickname Red Tails. If you haven't done it, another Baba becoming a better ally, watch the movie Red Tails. Uh, Though these were the best known of the Tuskegee Airmen, black aviators often served on bomber crews in the 447th Bombardment Group formed in 1944. A popular myth arose during the war and persisted afterwards that in more than 200 escort missions, the Tuskegee Airmen had never lost a bomber. The truth wasn't uncovered until years later when a detailed analysis found that an enemy aircraft shot down at least 25 bombers they escorted. Nonetheless, that was a much better success rate than the other escorts escort groups of the 15th Air Force, which lost an average of 46 bombers. By the time the 332nd flew its last combat mission on April 26, 1945, two weeks before the German surrender, the Tuskegee Airmen had flown more than 15,000 individual sorties over two years in combat. They had destroyed or damaged 36 German planes in the air and 237 on the ground, as well as nearly a thousand rail cars and transport vehicles and a German destroyer. And all 66 Tuskegee trained aviators were killed in action during World War II while another 32 were captured as POWs after being shot down. After their brave service, the Tuskegee Airmen turned home, returned home to a country where they continued to face systemic racism and prejudice, but they did represent an important step in preparing the nation for the racial integration of the military, which began with President Harry Truman, who issued Executive Order 9981, desegregating the U.S. Armed Forces and mandating equality of opportunity and treatment on, 19, on July 26, 1948. A number of the original Tuskegee Airmen would go on to longer careers in the military, including Davis, who would become the first black general in the new U.S. Air Force. George S. Spanky Roberts, who became the first black commander of a racially integrated Air Force unit before retiring as a colonel. And Daniel Chappie James Jr., who would become the nation's first black four-star general in 1975. More than 300 of the original Tuskegee Airmen were on hand to receive the Congressional Gold Medal. 
Medal from President George W. Bush in 2007. Two years later, the surviving Tuskegee trained pilots and support crew were invited to attend the inauguration of the nation's first African-American president, Barack Obama, who once wrote that his, quote, career in public service was made possible by the path of heroes like the Tuskegee Airmen and the trail that they blazed. Feels good to get that one out. It was a bit bumpy, but <laughs> it was necessary. Yeah, I think we we kind of go out of our way to come up with way black history facts that, that are a little less well known. Mm-hmm. So we weren't omitting the Tuskegee <laughs> Airmen. We were just trying to, you know, find some more obscure and lesser known way black history facts. Sure. Um, we realize, you know, as Q mentioned, we realize that most folks or a lot of folks might have heard of the Tuskegee Airmen, but we still need to do our part for those that haven't heard of them. Um, but that's going to do it for us today here on Civic Cipher. Once again, I'm your host, Ramses Ja. He has been Ramses Ja. Mm-hmm. I am still currently Q Ward. Show produced by producer Ms. Maggie. Um, thank She'd you. be knowing. She'd be knowing. Yes, indeed. Um, and uh, Ms. Maggie's going to have some stuff to say here pretty soon. So y'all stay tuned because uh, we'll convince her to jump on the mic eventually. Um, she's one of the show for us together each week. So. Um, be sure to hit the website, civiccypher.com. Follow us on all social media at Civic Cypher. Send us questions, topics. Be sure to make a donation. Again, the show is growing with your support. Uh, and please continue to support us. And of course, you can download this in any previous episodes. Um, and until next week, y'all. Peace. Step in the borders with press passes. We bring it to you as it happens. The streets love my crew for music and rapping. Street commander slash beat expander. Here to fight the slander with the proper propaganda. What's happening? You got a question that ask it. The news is just a TV show. Get past it. And this from a quiet wartime journalist headlines. Wake up, refuse, and resist. Like this, like this, like this, like this. We kick finance, action, and scores of sports. Politics, new fashion, and war reports. Entertainment, when we come to perform, watch. And the illness weatherman in the biz on Stormwatch. Triclops Media, record tape for TV, net radio, CD, or DVD. Our This is why bad is in scratch and keeping time. Mightier than the sword, cause the pen gives the word, sending swords to war. They twisted it when he pulled it out, stay tongue.